from InsureTech Ireland. This is InsureTech Radio, episode number 28 with Kingsley Aikens. Welcome to InsureTech Radio, the podcast that teaches you about how technology is changing insurance and about the people making it happen. Um, and that's why actually networking is really important for a very simple reasons. How are you going to get your next job? I mean, the hidden jobs market, um, where most decent jobs aren't advertised at all. Um, you need to be known um, and you need to, you know, realize we're living in a world where it's not what you know or not even who you know, but who knows you. That means you need to build your your connections and you need to build, interesting enough, you need to build what we call a lot of weak connections. This week, my guest is Kingsley Aikens. Kingsley talks to me about how he worked with Tony O'Reilly to establish the Ireland Funds, how Ireland and other countries can harness the power of their diaspora, and he gives tips and tricks about how you can develop your network, even if you don't like networking. So I know this is a weird week for everyone, but hopefully you can find some time for yourself, go for a walk, listen to the podcast, and hopefully learn something. Take care. When I finished up in um, in uh, the rugby thing, I um, I went and worked in London for a couple of years, and then I went back to college and I did a master's in, in international trade, and I joined an organization that most people won't have heard of because it's defunct now called Corstructola, which is now Enterprise Ireland. And I worked for them for about three years here in Dublin. And then I put my name in a hat for a posting and they had offices around the world. And uh, it was quite funny because there were uh, five uh, cities up for grabs when the posting was being announced. And they were um, Moscow, Lagos, um, Sydney, um, Glasgow, and then the glamour posting, Limerick. <laughs> and my name came up opposite um, Sydney. So they said, uh, all right, sunshine, off you go. And, uh, you know, I basically said, look, when your country calls you, you got to put your body on the line and do what's needed. So I went off to Sydney and I didn't know a sinner. I didn't have a single person I knew out there, but I had two telephone numbers and I rang those two people. I met them and, um, we said, look, there's no network of Irish business people out here in Sydney and there's lots were coming out. And, um, why don't we set one up? So we actually set up a business club and the three turned into 13 and it turned then into 39. We 39 people at our opening dinner and we called it the Lansdowne Road Club because we all used to play rugby and we thought that'd be nice. And then in a sort of a a spirit of sporting ecumenism, we dropped the road and it became the Lansdowne Club. And, you know, I went back to it. I was invited back a few weeks ago uh, on St. Patrick's Day to their 30th anniversary dinner and there was 2,000 people at it and uh, you know it's just incredible how this thing grew and one of my th- things I'm interested in life in general is that you know nobody ever started a large company you know Apple computers started in a in a garage Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs you know put together some bits and pieces and turned up with a computer Disney started in a shed you know Hewlett and Packard started in a garage Zuckerberg started in a dorm and, you know, the first Ryanair flight out of Ireland was in Waterford in 1985, flew from Waterford to London, was one plane and 19 passengers. You know, this year they'll do 125 million passengers. So 
I love that notion that nobody ever started a large company and things like Amazon and Starbucks all started very modestly. Um, and so, you know, in a funny sort of way, the Lansdowne Club was part of that. And, and, and I was looking to try and find somebody who'd be a good kind of titular head of the organization, didn't have to do anything, but would be a name that would um, add maybe some luster to the organization. And the person in those days who really was the most prominent Irish business person in the world was a guy called Tony O'Reilly. And um, he was obviously a wonderful rugby player in his day. Um, but he, he was at this stage the CEO of the H.J. Hines Food Company in Pittsburgh in the United States. So I actually just wrote a letter, a cold letter. Uh, Dear Dr. O'Reilly, you know, we have this network we're looking for somebody to head it up. Would you be kind enough to do so? And I really didn't anticipate getting an answer. But actually what happened a couple of weeks later, I had an answer. And the letter from him said three things. It said, um, I think what you're doing is great. I'm a big fan of building networks of Irish people around the world. So well done on that. Um, secondly, uh, I'm actually coming to Australia on business because I'm buying newspapers. And uh, and thirdly, said, you know, maybe if you're free, we could meet for lunch. So I was going to write back and say, nah, you know, I'm too busy. You know, I said, ah, sorry. <laughs> Play it cool. <laughs> Play it cool. But actually, sure, I met him for lunch and I ended up working for him for 21 years. So, you know, I'm a big fan of just um, the concept of serendipity can play a role in your life, like random chance luck or whatever it is. Uh, but I believe you can actually make your own luck a little bit. So to a certain extent, you could argue I made my own luck, but there was a certain fair amount of serendipity in this. And... Um, and so, you know, the Lansdowne Club went, went went on to success, but what he asked me to do is to set up with some other people the the Ireland Funds in Australia. And the Ireland Funds was something he and Dan Rooney, who was the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, former US ambassador to Ireland, in fact, sadly just passed away uh, a few weeks ago. And Dan was also based in Pittsburgh, where the H.J. Hines Company's headquarters were. And they had an idea that there was such a thing as an Irish empire, but not built by military might or force of arms, but just by the fact that, you know, so many Irish people over the centuries uh, left Ireland and went to live in other countries. Um, more people have left Ireland than any other country in the world and as, as a pro, per capita kind of uh, situation. Over 10 million people have left Ireland in total. So so they're all over the world. And of course, we have this gigantic diaspora. Um, and, and they had this notion that maybe, just maybe we could tap into this diaspora uh, and it would be a force for good in Ireland. And in those days, you know, there's a pretty vicious um, troubles going on in the north. And uh, they also wanted to make sure that people in the United States, you know, supported peaceful initiatives in Ireland. And so they set up the Ireland Funds. It's called the American Ireland Fund. And they set it up in um, with a f black tie fundraising dinner, you know, to raise some money in New York. Uh, in 1976, and the dinner was so dramatically unsuccessful. The only reason they had a second dinner a year later was to pay for the first dinner they had. And that's, you know, $500 million ago. And it kind of bears out the point I'd made a few minutes ago about nobody ever started a large company. I mean, here was an organization that started, uh, you know, with a minus figure, um, modeled on the UJA, the United Jewish Appeal, what the Jewish community globally um, particularly in the United States, had done for their for Israel. Could um, could the Irish community in the United States do that for Ireland? And um, so I ended up working for for the organization. I moved from Sydney to Boston, um, and uh, 
grew the organization, then my remit was to grow it in the US, but also internationally. So it's now in 13 countries, it's in 39 cities, it's raised $500 million. Um, it's uh, going from strength to strength and uh, um, has become a bit of a model for diaspora philanthropy. Um, and at the same time, what has happened globally is that um, countries all over the world are realizing that they have something which I call diaspora capital, which is the overseas resources um, available to a country or a city or a place or an organization as made up of flows of people, of uh, ideas, knowledge, and of finance. Um, and so with, there are now 240 million people living outside the country they were born in. Um, if that were a country, it'd be the fifth largest country in the world. Uh, and countries are realizing that you know, the countries that lost the most to emigration are actually in a position now to benefit the most by engaging their diasporas. Um, so there's over a hundred countries trying to figure out how to do this. Um, and the, and the top countries really are Israel, obviously, for historic reasons. Um, India is fascinating. I can talk at length about what India is doing in this space. China has traditionally always had terrific connections with their diaspora. 80% of foreign direct investment in China is from their own Chinese around the world. Um, and Ireland is one of the leaders in that space. Um, Ireland has been at this for quite a long time. And so I've become fascinated by by this. And it's it, it's really been made possible now and has been accelerated by two things, technology and communications. And um, because in the old day, days, you know, when you emigrated, you were gone and you were gone for good. And it was all over and absence equals exile and exile equals absence. But now people can be here and there. They can lead what's called hyphenated lives. Um, in the old days, your geography dictated your identity. If you lived in Southern California, that's who you were and that's where you belonged and that's where you were expected to give all your allegiance to. Whereas now we say geography is history, if you like, that people can be totally committed and living in Southern California, but very engaged back to Poland or Portugal or Peru or, or Scotland or Ireland. So, so that's what's happening. Um, and people are connected instantaneously. I get calls here in the morning from friends in Australia and they're telling me about things that are happening, you know, a mile away from where I am right now because they're reading newspapers some hours before I even get out of bed. Um, and that's why the world is so fundamentally different and changed. So now what were once I call lost actors are actually national assets and countries realize that they have an asset in their diasporas. And if they put in place, you know, sort of smart ideas and strategies to connect with these people, it's a, it's a formidable resource. And, um, so I've worked with over 30 countries now. I finished up with the Ireland funds that came back to live in Ireland and, um, you know, started my own consultancy company here. And uh, I've been involved with um, not just interestingly enough countries. I've, I've also been involved with cities. I, I just wrote a desperate strategy for Copenhagen in Denmark. Um, and this is not a poor, impoverished, you know, African country or city. It's, this is a, one of the most sophisticated countries in the cities in the world. And they have 200,000 Danes live outside Denmark. And they've set up a thing called the Copenhagen Goodwill Ambassadors. So people who've... Uh, born and educated in Copenhagen, but they're living around the world and they're very fond of Copenhagen and their city and they want to do stuff. And that stuff could be trade and investment. It could be, uh, it could be culture. It could be, um, uh, mentoring. It could be volunteering. It could be sport. It could be tourism. Lots and lots of different areas. Education is a big one. 
Um, so I think that, uh, what's interesting now about diaspora is how it's taking on all these different shapes. And even, even, a it's not just about countries. Diaspora is about place. So people, some people are very passionate about, say, Donegal. They have no interest in Cork. In fact, good old Irish way, some people rather hope Cork falls over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so, so that's an interesting thing, or it's about a place, or about a city, or a town, or a village, or a region. That's interesting. But also it can be about an organization such as a company. So here's an interesting one. You know, the company with the most powerful diaspora in the world is called McKinsey, the oh, consulting yes. company. Yeah. So, 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 so it's McKinsey, you know, one in 30 people who join McKinsey get to become partner, and the other 29 must leave. And what McKinsey say is, look, you're leaving. Uh, but we're going to keep in touch with you. We're going to help you get your next job. We're going to uh, constantly keep you informed what's happening here and your colleagues and former colleagues. So they've built this global network. They have a, a McKinsey Global Alumni Office in Boston. A guy called Sean Brown runs it. Um, and they keep in touch. And of course, you know what happens. These people refer business back to McKinsey. So, so companies are now seeing that they have diasporas. Um, one I'm particularly interested in right now is sports teams have diasporas. So you have, you know, the All Blacks or the, the Washington, um, you know, the Dallas Cowboys or the Boston Red Sox or Manchester United or Barcelona have diasporas. So I like the notion that diasporas can be a, quite a loose term. Um, and in essence, then kind of the glue, what keeps it all together is my other kind of great interest is, is networking. So diasporas are networks and to be successful, you need to build these networks. But here's what's curious. Um, everybody says networking is really important and everybody says that, you know, you need to build your networks to get through life, but no school or college teaches networking. Um, and companies don't have strategies for networking. So I've always found that a little bit strange. Um, you know, you learn all sorts of things in school and college, which will be practically of no use to you as you progress through life. But this will always be of use for you. Um, so I'm very interested in a, there's a, a concept called PIE, um, P-I-E. And PIE was perfected uh, over in the United States that said that, you know, your progress through your career is about PIE and PIE stands for, um, you know, how well you do your job, how productive you are at your job. Um, and they say that's only 10%, which is your performance is only 10% of, 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 of progress in your career. And I found that it was an incredible statistic. And 30% is I for image and 60% is, um, exposure. So in other words, it doesn't matter how good you are. If nobody knows anything about you, if you don't have any network, if you like, if, if, if people don't know how good you are, then it's, it's not worth anything. And the reason that performance is only 10% is that everybody, you know, is quite good to have got to where they get. And, and here's an interesting challenge in the world today. And I'm hearing this from companies all over the place is that, um, the next generation of leadership, which are moving into companies now are failing to realize that as they progress through their career, the technical skills they needed to get their jobs in the first place is becoming less important and relationships are becoming more important. Mm. Um, and so there's an interesting challenge out there now. And uh, technology is in some ways not helping. Um, you know, the frustration you hear from executives when they say, I just can't get my people to actually connect with people, talk to people, communicate, pick up the phone to people because they want to text and they want to email all the time. And it was interesting. I was listening to Eric Schmidt, who's the head of uh, Google, give a speech there the other day 
to the university graduates of UPenn, the graduation address, and he said, turn off your computers. He said, turn off your cell phones. Get up and walk around. There's no water cooler or coffee station on the internet. Mm. Connect with people. Ariana Huffington said, uh, you know, we're over-connecting electronically and under-connecting interpersonally. And there's a great book by a woman called Sherry Turkle of MIT. And she's a techie lady and she was on the cover of Wired magazine. But she's written a book that's become a bestseller called Alone Together. And what she says is that, you know, for the first time ever, it's so exciting. We're all connected with everybody all around the world, but we're all alone in front of a screen. So I think there's some challenges there and I'm not a Luddite. I'm not against these, this technology in any way. And I, I really enjoy my LinkedIn and connecting with people and learning about people. But, you know, to be successful, you have to be high tech and high touch. Mm. And I think very often people forget the latter. And, um, or what are some common misconceptions people have about networking? Yeah. Well, I think most people hate it. Um, and, um, it's got a sleazy image for starters. And it's, it's, it's sort of conjures up images of this kind of obsequious, smarmy fella in a bar flicking out business cards at a ferocious rate. You know, you wake up in the morning, you find somebody's business card and they turn up your trousers and, and you're thinking, wow, where did that come from? And, and that's the image of it. Um, so, so one of the things I try to convince people is that actually, Shy, seemingly introverted people can be terrific networkers because you know what? They do it with decency and authenticity and integrity and honesty. Um, and that comes through. Whereas that slightly smarmy individual who's sort of backslapping everybody comes across as a bit inauthentic. But that is a challenge. Um, you know, um, so I think we have a tendency to mix up networking and sociability. We assume that the most sociable person is the best networker. And that's not always the case. So that's always a relief uh, when when I say that to to groups etc. They because you can see people saying, "Well, that's 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 kind of good to hear." Um, but you're right; there are some challenges um, with the word. I wish there was another word. Um, there, there isn't really, you know, connecting, communicating, and all that kind of stuff. Relationships etc. Networking is what it is. We kind of all know what it is, and um, I think we're kind of stuck with it. But I do think that um, it's more important now than ever, and one of the reasons for that. And I when I do my networking training with corporates. I actually show a picture of me and my father. And my father left school at 14 and joined a company, which he then left at age 77. So he just nicked in a quick 63 years in this one company. Well, those days are over. And my kids are coming out of school and college now. You know, they're going to be working for companies that haven't been invented yet, trying to solve problems we don't even know about. Um, they're not going to be the companies that, you know, they're going to be working for. Um, nobody's ever heard of them yet. They're probably going to work, have 15 or 20 different jobs. Um, and that's why actually networking is really important mm. for a very simple reason is how are you going to get your next job? I mean, the hidden jobs market, um, where most decent jobs aren't advertised at all. Um, you need to be known. Um, and you need to, you know, realize we're living in a world where it's not what you know or not even who you know, but who knows you. So that means you need to build your your connections and you need to build interestingly enough you need to build what we call a lot of weak connections um, and the reason for that is we all struggle in life with a thing called homophily which is a tendency we have to always hang around with people who are just like us 
nothing wrong with this, of course. Uh, you know, we were born into families and we go to school and we play sport and we go on holidays and, you know, we join companies um, with people just like us and we marry them, we produce more of them. <laughs> but the world out there is very, very diverse. So when I grew up in this city, and it wasn't today nor yesterday, um, Dublin was, I used to call it male, pale and stale. You know, it was a pretty... Um, un-international, un-cosmopolitan place. Whereas now, 17% of the population of Ireland were not born in Ireland. In the United States, it's 12%. In Dublin, it's 25%. And if, you're, if, you're, if your network doesn't reflect the diversity of the society and the environment in which you live, and if as a company, your leadership and your, your workforce does not reflect the diversity of the economy in which you operate, all the research says that you underperform as a result. So there's shifts and changes which are happening rapidly, which we have to be aware of. Yeah. I was thinking there, so say, maybe for, on a practical level, for someone who's just graduated from university or maybe say they're two or three years out of university, uh, maybe they didn't play sports, so they don't, they don't have a network of a team. Um, what would you say to someone like that with kind of, uh, who might be nervous, say, about networking? What, where, where, where should they start? You know, and I think I think that's a, a great question, and I often I mean, I've done a lot of training with corporates uh, in in Dublin in financial services and uh, accounting and law and those sort of sectors, and um, uh, very often people will say to me, you know, networking in Ireland is about two things: it's about alcohol and sport, you know, <laughs> and they say, well, I don't drink, or you know, I'm pregnant, or whatever it is, and uh, you know, and I um, you know, I'm no instant rugby or GAA or soccer or golf. I just have no interest in this stuff. So, you know, I think that we have to watch that, you know, and we have to, again, back to this diversity issue, you know, we've got to realize that there's people with lots of different interests. Um, your question about, uh, you know, how do you get started? And I think that it's always quite a good idea to try and, you know, we are the average of the people we hang around with, you know, and uh, if you hang around with very pessimistic people, guess what you become? And if you hang around with people and try to spot people who are actually good at this stuff, I mean, the one thing I, you know, the, the greatest thing I took from from working all that time with Tony O'Reilly was he was just a consummate, incredible global networker. So, you know, I watched him and I observed him and others. And I realized that there are certain characteristics that these great networkers had. Um, firstly, they work hard at it and they, they genuinely put the effort in. They... Um, they're humble about it. They don't brag about it. They don't keep score. They don't kind of say, say, I did a, I did a favor for this person. Now he owes me one or she owes me one. Um, they don't do that. Um, they understand that actually networking, and this is contrary to what maybe many people think. Networking is all about giving, not getting. Uh, cause we often think, boy, I've got a problem. I've got a problem at work or I want to get a new job. So I better go out and start networking because I want something for myself. It's all me, 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 me. Whereas it's the opposite. If you actually spend your life figuring out how can I add a bit of value to other people's lives? The, the mantra is that if you give to the individual, it comes back from the network. And, you know, I've seen that in action. I've seen that happen so many times. And, you know, we, we think a lot of this stuff might be just latest thinking on this. It's, it's not. And this stuff's been around forever. In fact, I was coming through New York two nights ago and um, there it was in the bookshop. The number one book sticking out was How to Win Friends and Influence People written by Dale Carnegie in 1936. Um, and it still is, you know, I think just right on the money. 
So, so what did Dale Carnegie said? Well, he said a few things. He said, you know, the sweetest sound that anybody ever heard was the sound of their own name. You know, how simple and obvious is that? He said that the, the smile on your face is more important than the clothes on your back. He said to be, to be interesting, be interested. He said a really good question beats a really good comment. Uh, and he said, you know, you can, you can achieve much more in life by helping other people get what they want than trying to use them to get what you want. And a lot more. And it's written in a slightly folksy kind of style, which maybe turns some people off. But actually, it's pretty much spot on. Mm. Um, I mean, and his, his simplest mantra of all was that people do business with people they like and trust. So, so he's introducing now this word trust, which is such a fascinating word, trust. I mean, what is it we've lost, you know, in the, just looking in the last few years, trust in everything from church to, to, uh, financial institutions, banks, Gardaí, maybe, you know, so, so trust is an interesting topic. So Edelman, which is the world's leading kind of PR communications company, they do an annual trust survey and they released it this year in Davos and it said, that trust in four institutions, government, um, business, media, and nonprofits is at its lowest level in recorded history. And the default of the consumer or the default of the public is to be distrustful, is to be cynical. Um, that's an interesting challenge. Um, and what Edwin, interestingly enough, said is that the one thing people trust is their peers. They trust people they know well. And what they said in this report is that companies actually have to reorientate their messaging through their employees um, and uh, and use them to get messages out because people trust people that, that they know and like. So I think that that's fascinating. And, you know, you saw what I call it Brexump, you know, combination of Brexit and Trump, extraordinary kind of distrust of what the traditional media were saying of what traditional politicians were saying. Um, so, so we live in, you know, we live in interesting times. The, um, interesting, uh, report I just read the other day of a speech given by the, the CEO of Mer Daimler Benz, Mercedes Benz manufacturer, who said that, you know, change is happening faster now than ever before in history and never will be, will be as slow again which I thought was an interesting way of putting it. And he, he talked about things like, he said, we're a car manufacturing company. Most car manufacturing companies will go out of business in the next 20 years. Our competition will not be car companies. It'll be computer companies. It'll be, it'll be the Amazons and the, you know, the uh, Googles, etc. cetera. Uh, and he said, driverless cars are inevitable. And he painted a picture of, yeah, you want to go to the, you want to go to the airport, then you'll, you'll call up a car and the car will, this driverless car will take you there. You'll work on the way. And the car will disappear. But the number one revenue for something like Dublin Airport is actually car parking. Um, so these things will shift and change dramatically. He said that the accident rate right now is about one every 60,000, or injury, personal injury rate, one every 60,000 kilometers and accidents. It's going to go out to one every six million so the insurance industry is going to be totally and utterly disrupted. In fact, and I was with a doctor friend the other night who said, you know, also the organ transplant market, because that's how you get organ transplants is through access. So, so I was in Google in San Francisco after Christmas and with a group of people that were talking about driverless trucks. And, um, uh, but there's three million truck drivers in the United States. And I said, what's going to happen to these people? 
and, and one of the people said, you know what, when the washing machine was introduced in New York, thousands of maids walked down Fifth Avenue protesting because that was their job and they were going to lose their job. And, you know, uh, 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 you know, over 100 years ago, 25% of the economy of New York City revolved around horses, you know. So, so these things change. And as somebody put it to me the other day, the Stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stones. Um, so I think disruption is just going to accelerate. Um, and, you know, we all of us have to, I call it future-proof our jobs. You know, if you're a taxi driver, you know, if you're a truck driver, if, you know, all these things. And, and we're going to have to figure out a way as a society to handle this. You know, there's a lot of talk now about a, you know, a universal social wage that everybody gets paid whether they work or not. Um, Bill Gates the other day talked about taxing robots. But I think what's, what's, what's scary at one level is just the sheer speed of this stuff. Mm. It's coming down the pike very, very fast. So back to what I'm trying to talk about is you need, you need, as a country, city, location, you need your, your friends around the world. And that's why diaspora networks are important. As an individual, you need your networks as well. So you can, as I say, to help you future-proof your career and your life. Yeah, you need to know people and you need to be known. And so what would be a good first step for someone? Well, I think, um, you know, here's what we teach our kids. We teach our kids, don't talk to strangers, right? Uh, statistically, our kids are much more danger from friends and family, statistically. <laughs> but you know the way, don't talk to strangers. So that we beat into kids, don't talk to strangers. But you won't build a network which is diverse unless you learn to talk to strangers. And you can't walk down the street and said, I just heard this podcast about talking to strangers. Do you mind if I have a chat and maybe we'll have a couple? You can't do that. Um, but this is the important thing, you know, is to answer your question. You have to find a way that you get an opportunity to talk to strangers. Otherwise, you're going to live in this bubble only talking to people who are just like you. And over 90% of our conversations in any one month are with people we know. But you won't build diversity in your network unless you talk to strangers. So my advice to people is to, you know, get involved in um, uh, organizations like, I mean, I'm involved with the IIBN, the Irish International Business Network, uh, the Chamber of Commerce. I'm involved with the BlackRock Business Network. So get involved in some of these things. It's important that you develop a life bigger than your job. Um, and if you've kids, then it's, it's volunteering for sports and school and all that kind of stuff. And it's just amazing the things that happen when you, when you do stuff. And it's back to my thing about serendipity. You know, serendipity and luck doesn't happen in your life if you're lying in bed or sitting at home or sitting around your desk. Serendipity happens when you're in action, when you're in motion, when you're doing stuff. Um, serendipity doesn't happen on your diary. Serendipity doesn't, you can't sort of plan next Tuesday afternoon. I'm going to do some serendipitous activity, <laughs> but by, by changing your life and by beginning to do these sorts of activities, attending conferences, I always say that your name tag at a conference is a permission device to talk to strangers. So you can go up to somebody, you know, at a coffee break. And I just was at a, a spoke at the a conference in the UN the, the last two days. And um, there was 400 people from all around the world. It was, I mean, the content of the conference was not that inspiring. But actually, the coffee sessions and the cocktail parties and the drinks, and they were great. You know, and I, I came away with a ton of interesting connections, but the actual content was fairly, uh, fairly mediocre. So when you're at one of those events and you meet a couple of people, like, how do you follow up afterwards? Or do you even do that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, follow-up's really important. So, you, you know, you, you do the traditional um, swapping of business cards. And then now with LinkedIn, you know, you can find out enormously about people. You can find out a lot of information. And when you just think about it, 500 million people in the world and mostly business people, professional people in the world have told this company all their educational details and all their their work experience and said, you can have it and you can have it for free and you can put it up there for the world to see. So, you know, before I went to the conference in New York, uh, I was able to get a list of people who were attending, the list of the other speakers, and I was able to Google these people and to, to, and to check them on LinkedIn. And I, I went there with a list of people I want to speak to the, the following people and got to see most of them. Um, and then follow up afterwards is obviously, um, I, I, I like to try and keep records of them. I also like to try and remember something small about everybody I meet, some small piece of information might be to do with their family, their background, their, you know, their interests, their hobbies, their favorite soccer team, where they go on holidays. I make a note of that because when you reflect that back to somebody long time later, they're really, uh, they really are impressed that you actually took the trouble to listen to them mm. because the greatest skill of all in networking and it's the simplest skill of all in the world, in the world, and the hardest to do well is to listen. And most people in life don't listen. Most people listen only to prepare what they want to say next. Most people are all they want to do is wait for a moment to jump into a conversation and to tell somebody what they think and to advise them and to tell them what they should do to try to wow them with how great they are. And so, you know, we have to learn to listen like an interviewer. We have to learn to see listening as a form of activity, not as something that's passive. We tend to think that saying nothing is a form of weakness. Saying nothing is a form of not being an expert. Whereas in fact, saying nothing and genuinely listening, listening, you know, with your eyes and speaking with your ears is actually a very powerful device. And when you really truly become a generative listener, listen not just to what somebody is saying, but to what somebody is going to say next, people tell you everything. Um, and, you know, as Richard Branson said, you learn nothing when you're talking. Mm. Um, so, so that's a huge uh, challenge for many people. We tend to be narcissistic listeners, which is, you know, as soon as somebody says something, you know, we take whatever is they said and turn it into our own issue and, and start, you know, hijacking their conversation. So it is a, it is a really good skill to become good at. And, um, uh, and it, it is, I think it's the single most important skill in, in networking is to be a great listener. But, you know, back to your question about, you know, you know, just bearing in mind that there is some process behind networking. And as I said, some people think you're just somebody who's born as an, you know, other born networker. And what they really mean is they're born being very open and friendly and charming and sociable. And that's fine. And that's helpful, but it's not quite the same thing. And if you follow a process and, and, uh, you know, in my materials and I outline the process and it's about research, cultivation, solicitation, stewardship, there is, there's a way of doing this. Uh, and one of the things I always encourage people to do is to, to actually audit their network, to, uh, to print off their network and actually have a really hard look at it and ask yourself a, a brutal question. Is my network good enough for where I want to be in five years time? And by and large, most people say, you know, it's not. Yeah. Um, and when you print off your network, you discover a few things. I mean, <laughs> do you have a spreadsheet or is this yeah. LinkedIn or what do you, what, yeah, no, do you I, I have Outlook, you know, so I, oh. I'll print off my Outlook and I'll, so this is your, uh, your, uh, contacts, part contacts. Yeah. yeah. So, 
you know, and I've been around a long time, so I've built up a lot of context. And so the last time I did it, it was 22 of my people were dead. So it's good. It's a good way of cleaning up your network is get rid of the deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's a bit morbid, but, um, but also you'll see when you look at your network, you see, you know what? I had some fantastic connections and relationships in the past and I've let them slip. Uh, you know, life has gotten away. It's been busy and everybody's very busy. Um, but these are some great connections and all it needs is a quick phone call and just reconnect with somebody and have a chat or, or, or have a coffee or whatever. So, so that you've got some little, you know, you know, jewels within your network that you, we've forgotten about. So I think that's worth doing. You'll also realize, you know, I've got, I don't know anybody in, you know, tourism, aircraft leasing, uh, accounting law, whatever it is. And you realize I've got to put some effort into just plugging those gaps. Um, and building out, uh, building out the network. And I also, you know, I encourage people to, to divide their network into four categories. And I, I call the, the four categories. The first one is a contact and that's a name on your network. And for the life of you, you can't remember who they were. You must have met them somewhere. You must have picked up a business card. You must have been on a flight or at a conference or something. There's something there, but you can't remember who they are. So that's pretty weak. And then as you kind of move up the pyramid, um, the next is a, is a connection and that's, you know, you know them, they know you. If you call them, they know who you were and vice versa. That's better. Nothing happening. You're not doing anything. And then higher up again is a relationship and a relationship is, um, you know, you know each other, uh, you like each other, uh, you're doing business together in some way or some form or other and you trust each other. And that's, that's really good stuff. And that's a really strong member of your network. And they're the sort of people that will refer you, will speak well of you, be happy to make an introduction for you. And then the top of the pyramid, I call a friend. And I have people I work with who are friends and I have friends who are friends, but it's a small group. And I define this category as somebody you could call on their cell phone on a Sunday afternoon. I think that knocks out a lot of people. There's a great um, a Scottish anthropologist in Oxford University called Robin Dunbar, and he's become famous for a thing called Dunbar's number. It's 150. 150, yeah. yeah, spot on. And what he has said, and he's gone back through, you know, you know, chimpanzees and mammals and, you know, primeval apes and Roman centurions and red Indians and all this kind of stuff and up to corporates and everything. He says 150 is about the max. He said that, you know... um Technology, technology is changing, you know, on a, on a sort of a, you know, every few months a stronger, bigger sort of bit of technology comes out. But up here, as in up in your brain, your cranium hasn't changed in a billion years, you know. So you can't have 800 close personal friends. Uh, he says the maximum number of relationships you can have at any one time, including friends and family, is 150. And, you know, and even that's, I think, pushing it. Um, so, uh, so he's become pretty respected and renowned in, in, in places like Google and Instagram, Pinterest. They all kind of accept this and Facebook. Um, so we do have to try and get that balance right between, you know, the technology and the ability we have to connect with a lot of people and also, um, not forgetting the interpersonal stuff. Mm. I'm just thinking there now is, so say you, you're there's a person at one of your courses, they're like a mid-career professional, maybe say they're in their 40s or whatever, but they haven't really actively networked. They're probably part of a network because of all the people they've worked with for the last 20 years or so. Yeah. But like, so what would you suggest to them? Would be printing off your outlook or like what would their first step be? Well, you know, I can't do their press-ups, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, they have to do some, there's a bit of, there's a few things. Firstly, you know, they have to, Attitude is important. Yeah. Um, so they have to become relationship driven rather than transaction driven. 
And that's a challenge because corporations basically reward, assess and uh, compensate people based on transactions and not based on, on relationships. But so they have to make that shift. They have to pick up some of these skills we touched upon, which is, you know, the ability to be a really good listener, to see, to build weak connections, to make serendipity work. You need to, you need to work on all those sorts of areas. Um, and so that's a kind of a fundamental skill. And, and then they have to shift, they have to change their behavior. And the hardest thing in the world is behavior change. I mean, you know, it, there's a good reason why, you know, it, when you've been doing something one way for dozens and dozens of years, it's not easy to shift. And we all know, you know, nine out of 10 people who start a diet in January are heavier the next Christmas. I mean, it's just, we know there's always a difference between what we know is, some, is something either good or bad for us. And then actually we can't seem to be able to figure out to, to do it. We, lots of people know smoking is bad for you. It'll kill you. But yet lots of people smoke. We know drinking too much is bad for you. Lots of people drink too much. So behavior change is the real challenge in all of this. And what a, you know, your question about sort of a 40 year old executive who might feel that, you know what? I don't, you know, he may wonder, why am I getting overlooked for promotion? How come somebody over there is, you know, is, is progressing faster than me? And I think I'm just as good as them. And it may be back to that pie thing of performance, image and exposure and the exposure thing, you know, the only way you can, you can, um, you can you can tackle that whole issue of, of exposures. You know, you need to become known for something. You know, you need to become a go-to person for something. You need to be willing to speak about things or you need to be willing to use opportunities at conferences to make presentations or whatever it is. But, you know, if you don't do that, um, life can be a little bit brutal. And, uh, you know, when you move up through the stratosphere, it's fairly rarefied air up there and not everybody gets the chance. So so I guess what I'm arguing is that this is a really important um it's a really important competitive advantage. And here's what's happening out there in the workforce. Companies want to hire and wire. So companies want to hire people and they want to wire into their network. So your network then becomes part of your net personal asset base. You've built it. It goes with you. When you leave a company, it goes with you. So, so it's, it's this now companies, when they're hiring, they want to know all about your education. They want to know all about your technical ability, your qualifications. They want to know about your experience. But now they want to know something else. They want to know who you know, um, because they see this as an advantage for the company. And it's a struggle for companies. I mean, there's a great line that says, uh, you know, if Hewlett Packard knew what Hewlett Packard knows, it'll be a great company. In other words, you know, they have such ability in that company and everybody within the company knows all sorts of people, but they find it hard. And it's nothing specific to Hewlett Packard. All companies struggle with this. Um, you know, and, and all companies are trying to, uh, resolve this stuff. I, I just spent um, a day in Singapore a few weeks ago, and I, I taught in the National University of Singapore. It's the number one university in Asia, number 20 in the world, the smartest, brightest kids in Asia. And they've set up a new department as called the Center for Future Ready Graduates. So what's the problem that they're trying to solve? The problem they're trying to solve is the kids in Singapore have been, um, I call it foie grad education that's been stuffed into them. They're brilliant, deductive, analytical, and truly crap on purpose, meaning, empathy, relationships, and networking. They don't have these soft skills. And soft skills are hard. And so this center um, realizes that the kids coming out of this university, brilliant and all as they are, are actually not fit for purpose. Um, 
and they need to work on these other areas. And they've, you know, there's 50 people working in this, this center in, in Singapore. And I spent a month working in Australia with lots of financial organizations. And they were saying to me, they're no longer hiring the top academic kids because they actually don't progress into general leadership and management because they are weak in these areas. So I'm trying to convince schools. Um, I was in my daughter's school there on their TY year. I took all their class for, uh, would you believe, a class on networking. Um, and I'm trying to get the universities here. I teach in Smurfit and various places, but I'm trying to get the universities to introduce networking mm-hmm. as a core uh, module for, for every, every, whether you're doing, you know, be a doctor or an engineer or a, a theologian or whatever it is, I think networking is important. A uh, boss of mine about five years ago, he's brilliant, uh, networking, great guy for relationships in general. He had this, had an acronym, which was a TNT. It says tiny noticeable things. So you don't have to do big grand gestures for people, but if you send someone a thank you card or you, um, you wish someone a happy birthday, just small little things like that that don't cost you anything, but have a disproportionately large effect. Um, but most people are too nervous to do it. To your Look, point, I, I I I absolutely agree with that, and I mean I I'm always writing handwritten notes, and you know I'm always slicing articles out of newspapers, oh, yeah. and I and I have a little card, and I stick it on there. I thought you might be interested in this, and I put it in. The, I I go back. To the, I'm old fashioned. I like to put it in an envelope, stick it a stamp on, and walk down the post box, and somebody gets that in their mail. Now nobody does that. I'm going to steal that idea. I'm telling you, it's the simplest right thing. Well, in fact, I've you know I don't have them here, but I have a. You know, a little card, yeah. which, uh, says a little bit about me and the organization. And, um, and then it's blank on one side. So it's like the old postcard. Mm. And, uh, you know, after I've met somebody, I'll just write a handwritten note. I mean, and I would never send a letter to anybody without a handwritten note mm. on the letter as well. So they're all, I think this TNT or whatever you call it is, 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 is good stuff. When I'm walking down the street, if I see a couple of tourists and they have a map and they're upside down, I just go over and say, are you lost? There's three simplest words you could think. Are you lost? Most people understand that. And I have these wonderful conversations. And, uh, you know, I go away feeling great. They've had a bit of a laugh. And I'm, several times now, they, they, I've gone off and had a cup of coffee with some visitors to the city. Nobody does that sort of stuff, you know. I know sometimes the last thing you want to do is, you know, when you get on a plane or get on a you just don't feel like it. But every so often, uh, when you just push yourself outside your comfort zone, you, you know, can be pleasantly surprised by what happens. You know, we, we're all driven by unconscious bias, you know. We make just these assumptions about people and assumptions that just because of the way they look and sound, etc. And you only get over that by actually um, listening to people. And letting them tell their story and uh, have a chat, you know. So, uh, no, I, I think that all that kind of stuff all helps the kind of fabric of, uh, you know, civilized society. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Um, do you have any last parting words or any ask of the audience? Well, um, it would be invidious of me to use this occasion, you know, to anyway, anyway promote my own business. So perhaps I should be invidious. But, uh, you know... Uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the whole area of networking, very interested in the whole area of diaspora. So, you know, if anybody wants to connect with me, the website is Diaspora Matters. Um, and uh, you can catch me and get me on LinkedIn, obviously. Uh, always interested in exchanging ideas, views, and um, and always wanting to improve, you know, the material. I've, I've, I've built, I've written all this material, and now it's all on mobile. So you, you can actually, you can you can do the entire program on, on a mobile um, I'm in what's called, we were chatting earlier, you know, micro learning or as the Australians call it, commute learning. 
where people want small bite-sized chunks of information they can consume on the go you know while they're traveling or sitting in the gym on the bike or uh, you know in the bath or whatever it is you know we we're in a world where we need to be constantly training upskilling up learning we can't sort of go to university and then say it's all over um and so that's my space um so i'm always interested in talking to people about that Kingsley, thanks very much for joining us and uh, everyone can check out the website and um, are you on Twitter as well? Uh, yeah, Twitter and at Kingsley Aikens and www.diasporamatters.com and uh, LinkedIn. So um, yeah, covered all the bases. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.